Amen. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 15 with me. And um, I'm going to confess to you that I've kind of got hung up in studying um, Abraham's life. I did not anticipate going chapter by chapter and verse by verse like I have, but I can't. I can't get past it. I'm, I'm um, actually a little bit ashamed that I never really studied Abraham's life in the detail that I have in all the years that I've been in ministry. When the Bible makes it clear to us in the New Testament that he is the father of the faith. In fact, the Bible says that all who are children of faith, all who have trusted Christ, um, are the children of Abraham. He is our spiritual forefather. He modeled for us a life of faithfulness and obedience to God. So I've enjoyed the study. And... Um, uh, he, he occupies a, a, a prominent part in the Scriptures in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Over 70 times, I believe, in the New Testament, Abraham is mentioned by name, always as a model of faith and obedience to God. So he's a good example um, for us to follow. And um, chapter 15 this morning has more to say to us about our God than it does about Abraham. Um, I'm excited to dig into it. But let me, let me open it. Let me preface it with a little bit of an illustration. When I was a kid growing up, and even for my kids growing up, a big no-no for us, something that we were never allowed to do, and if something that I, I got caught doing it or my kids got caught doing it, um, I'd get wore out or they'd get wore out, <clears throat> was using a phrase, I swear to God. Now see, even me saying that, mm, that's what I'm talking about. It, it felt funny to even say that this morning. It felt strange to even say that because all of my life I have been taught um, that that's something that we ought never do, that we ought never swear to God. The only reason we'd ever really be tempted to do that was if somebody didn't believe what we were saying and that was the ultimate way to convince them that what we were telling them was the truth. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Well, you know, we, we, might, we might say all kind of things, try to convince them, but the ultimate persuader was, I swear to God, I'm telling you the truth. Now, we, we got around that. I don't ever remember saying, I swear to God. All right? Um, it just don't even feel right to say that. But one way that we got around that, we made an end run around that, is that I swear on a stack of Bibles. <laughs> and ultimately in doing that, we're doing the same thing because the Bible is the voice of God, the truth of God, contains the name of God. So that's, a, that's our end run around swearing to God. Now, you understand it, and even in our culture today, when somebody puts their hand upon a Bible... That's essentially what that means that we're doing, that we, we call heaven to record against us that day that we're going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And, and that putting our hand upon the Bible and raising our hand and saying those words when we're being sworn into court or sworn into office or whatever we're being sworn into is essentially us lifting up an oath before heaven that we are telling the truth so help us God now the Bible makes it very very clear that it's not a good idea to swear 
by anything. Let me just read you what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. You don't have to turn, I'm going to read it real quick. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 33, Jesus said, Again, you have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself. That means you should not break your vows. You should not forswear. You should not break your vows, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oath. You, you need to do what you said that you're going to do, that you promised that you're going to do. But verse 34 said, But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst make one hair white or black. Verse 37, but let your communication be, yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. So the Bible makes it abundantly clear that it's not a good idea to swear by anything. Just to let your yes be yes, your no be no to let your word be your word and stand on its own. Now, the reality that your word is going to be your word and that it stands on its own is that you prove yourself trustworthy in doing everything that you say. Then you don't have to swear by anything to convince anybody. But the reality is, is that we do still make vows. We still make oaths. And I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not saying that that's essentially wrong for us to do because when we engage ourselves in a marriage covenant we're making a vow to one another to death do us part when we when we engage in these things whether it's a civil any any contract in fact anytime you make a contract with somebody you are performing an oath you are making a vow you're signing your name on a line saying that i promise you that i will do this and so um god takes those vows seriously he takes our oaths seriously especially when we involve him in them which as a christian you cannot make a vow or an oath without involving god in it because um, your word bears testimony um to your own integrity and if you fail in that as a christian you brought reproach to the name of God. But every contract, civil, business, spiritual, is essentially an oath, a swearing that we're going to do as we have promised that we're going to do. And y'all know this is true. Sometimes there are consequences that are stated up front that if you don't do this, this is the consequence. Every time you take out a loan, and listen, how many of you read every document they slide across the counter? I don't. I'm just signing. You know, I'm just signing. Now they'll tell you what it means. I'm taking their word for it that it says what they're telling me it says. And I'm signing my name on it. The consequences of me not fulfilling my part is that if you don't do this, we're coming to get it. And, and, it, and, it, and, and in the process of us coming to get it, it's going to ruin your credit. So anytime we do that, we're actually taking an oath. And we understand that violating that oath will cost us something. And the truth is that, it, is that people don't take promises as serious as they used to. They don't take oaths. They don't take vows as seriously as they ought to. And in doing so, they jeopardize their own name. Because so, once you've gone back on your word, it's hard to be trusted by anybody. Because that record follows you. Once you have not kept your word, once you've violated a vow, once you've broken trust, it's hard to regain that. Now, I just kind of an opening invitation uh, open an illustration, I should say.
But let me read to you Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, then we're going to jump into our text. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do? Or hath he spoke, and shall he not make it good? So here's what that passage says. You can believe what God said. You can take what God said to the bank. God has said to us what he means to us, and he will do all that he has promised. But there are times in God's word where God has even went so far as to swear by his own name that what he's doing can be counted on. In other words, he, he, he didn't just say, I'm going to do this. He said, I swear by my own name, by my own character, by my own reputation that you can trust what I have said to you. Now, let me bring you up to, very quickly to chapter 15. Last week we talked about, in Genesis chapter 14, Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom, eventually moved into Sodom. Sodom got in trouble. They had been, um, the five nations around Sodom had been under the control of four other nations. Um, Sodom and those five nations decided to rebel, so they weren't going to pay taxes anymore to those four so those eastern kings, four of them, came down and invaded Sodom, invaded those nations around Sodom, and, um, and to bring them back into subjection. And in doing so, they took Lot captive and his family captive. They took everything that he had captive. And as soon as word got back to Abraham that nephew Lot has been taken captive by these kings, Abraham got together those 318 trained servants in his own house, and he may have been accompanied by some friends that he had made in that area, and he went after Lot. Um, four nations had taken him captive, and Abraham went after them with his servants, household servants, and, um, and, and overtook them about 140 miles away from home and, and defeated them and took back Lot and all those people, other people that had been taken captive, and spoiled them in the process. In other words, he, he took their possessions as well as the people um, that, they had, that they had taken away from Sodom. So when he gets back... He's met by two kings, one Melchizedek, who I believe is pre-incarnate Christ. If he's, if he's not pre-incarnate Christ, he is a picture and type of Christ. He's a king and a priest. He is the, he is the, he is the king um, whose name is Melchizedek, which means uh, king of righteousness. Um, he's the, he is the king of the city of Salem, which is later Jerusalem, which is the city of peace. The Bible also said that he's the priest of the Most High God. He's a king and a priest. The only other one I know in the Bible that fits that, that type is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a king and a priest forever. So I believe Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate Christ. And as soon as he came out and he said, Abraham, the reason you did what you did is because God blessed you. God gave you the victory and um, has made you a blessing to others. And so Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek as an act of worship and as an act of agreement with Melchizedek. Then the king of Sodom came along and said, um, you can keep all the spoils, just give me the people back. Just let me have the people and you can take the spoils. And you remember Abraham's response, I'm not going to take anything from you. I don't want it to ever be said that the king of Sodom made Abraham rich. 
It reminded me of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness where Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus, um, basically what Satan said is you can have all the wealth of the world, just give me the people. And Jesus said it ain't going to happen like that. Um, Jesus taking the people of the world and the spoils of the enemy in the end. But you got, you've got Abraham coming back as an humble hero, giving God the glory and refusing the reward of a pagan king. So what's going on in his mind after all this? I just refused the spoils of the king of Sodom. I just went after the four nations that came against Sodom and took the people and the spoils back from them. What's going through Abraham's mind right now? Just, I'm speculating, okay? I'm just purely speculating right now. I wonder how many enemies I have now. I mean, I'm already in a strange land, and yeah, I made some friends here. But I probably just insulted the king of Solomon and those kings that were around them because I refused to participate in, that, in the wickedness and refused to receive the reward. I know that I made some enemies in those four kings from the east that came down to put Sodom back under subjection. And I have taken that back from them and spoiled them. So how many enemies do I have now? And when are they going to come after me like I went after them? And maybe in the, in the midst of all of these things, maybe Abraham also asked himself this question. God's made me some promises. Will I live to see God's promises come true? Now, now I'm speculating in all of that. But the beginning of chapter 15 makes me believe that Abraham had a heart that was troubled about some things. Because the chapter begins like this in verse 1. After these things, that is, after the battles, after the testings of those two kings coming out to him, after the battles, after the testings, after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. Now why do you think God told Abraham, Fear not? Likely because Abraham was afraid. The God who knows our heart saw a man whose heart was troubled. And so he comes after these things, after the battle, after the, after the testing, after Abraham is troubled in his mind about how many enemies he might have made and when God's promises were going true in his life. And God comes on the scene and says to him, um, right from the start, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Now, I think it's interesting here that God uses that term, I am. Later on, when Moses wanted to know who it was that was sending him, uh, to, God, what do I tell him? Who do I tell him is sending me? Who is delivering the children? Who, whose name am I going in? And God told, told Moses, tell them I am. Which became the proper name for God, which became um, the, the name Jehovah. It's what the people... Um, of, of Israel referred to God as the self-sufficient, self-existent one. God said, I am. Abraham, I am your shield and I am your exceeding great reward. So I believe God knew that, that Abraham was afraid and I believe that he knew what he was afraid of and, um, and, 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 I, and I believe that, that all fear is ultimately a crisis of faith we begin to doubt and question God. It's a crisis of faith, and then we, we, we feel that emotion of fear. So all fear is rooted in that, in that crisis of faith. And the crisis is basically this, and I'm, I'm simplifying this as much as I can. And, um, and, 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 and 
And I, I, we did a study years ago called Experiencing God, and it was the subject, that whole crisis of faith thing, God invites us to join him where he's at work at, and any time we join God and what he's doing creates a crisis of faith in our life, which makes us fear, and we start trying to think through all of the situations and circumstances. So basically what a crisis of faith looks like is, okay, does God know about where I'm at? And does God know about what's ahead of me? And, and, if, and if he knows, does he care? And, and if he cares, is he able to work through in the present circumstances that I'm in? And then the, and then the final question is, will he? You know, does he know? Does he care? Can he, in spite of the current situation, four kings may be against me and Five kings mad because I wouldn't take their reward. What if they all come against me? Does God know? Does God care? Can he do anything about it? And then that last question is the clincher. Will he? God's answer to Abraham, I think, is designed to give him some security and some reassurance when he said, I'm your shield. I'm the one that's going to protect you. Abraham, I'm, I'm the only thing that you need. I am your shield. And I am your exceeding great reward. I'm your protection and I'm your provision. Abraham, you're going to find everything that you need, I am. If you need to be protected, I'm there. If you need to be promoted, if you need to be provided for, I'm there. I am what you need. You don't have to trust anything or anybody else. You don't have to know anything or, or, or anybody else. Um, in fact, you'll find some of the kings later on, when they saw insurmountable odds coming against them, they try to hire pagan kings to come help them and always got them in trouble. Jehoshaphat said, Lord, we don't have any power or, or, or might, and we don't know what we even ought to do, but our eyes are upon you. And God showed up and showed out, and he became their, their shield and their protector and their provider in that battle. So this is what God's saying, Abraham, you don't need to be afraid. You just need to trust that I will be the one that protects you, and I will be the one that provides for you. I am enough. And on that note of provision... Abraham has a question for God in verse 2. Abraham said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus? And Abraham said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. So not only, I think, is Abraham troubled about the fact that he's now probably created some enemies in his rescue of Lot. But there's still this question in his mind is, I'm getting old and God's promise is still not fulfilled. And I still don't have a child. I still don't have an heir. I still don't have any seed. Even though God has promised me a seed, I don't have that seed. So, so Abraham has a question that's revealing another place of need and another place of doubt in his life. I need an heir. I need somebody to carry on my heritage. I need somebody to pass along, um, to pass along my lineage, to pass along my possessions. I need an heir. And the only heir I have right now is a servant that was born in my house. I don't have any seed of my own. I don't have a son of my own. So, so, so what about the promise of the seed? This is, what, this is the question God's asking Abraham. God, when are you going to give me 
what you promised me. Has your patience with God ever worn thin? And, and you know, when your patience starts wearing a little, bit, a little bit thin, your faith might start wearing a little thin too because, you know, God, you promised this, but it ain't come to pass yet. So did I misunderstand you? Did I not hear you? Did I, did I misinterpret what you said? Is there something else that I need to consider? Um, should I start looking at other options in case maybe this is not going to come to pass? I think Abraham's uncovering his heart right here. Fear rooted in a crisis of faith because the time between God's promise and the time between the fulfillment of that promise is not known to Abraham. And there's a lot that's going on in his life and he doesn't know. Does the promise expire? Am I going to get too old? Am I going to die before I see the promise? Now, here's, all, here's what that says to me. That the father of faith wrestled sometimes with doubt. Don't that make you feel better about yourself? Now, I'm not saying we all feel better about our doubt, but here's what. It makes me feel better that the, that the one the, that the Bible calls the father of those who have faith sometimes wrestled with the promises of God to the extent that he went back and asked God, are you sure this is what you said you were going to do? And, 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 and if you need some help, are you going to let me know that you need some help? And so he trusted God without a doubt. But he didn't trust God perfectly without a doubt. Do you understand? He, he trusted God, but he had some doubts. He trusted God, but he had some crises of faith along the way. And here's the cool thing about it. God didn't get mad at him. God didn't get angry with him. God didn't, uh, God didn't evict him. God didn't say, because you doubted the promise, I'm not going to give you the promise. Now what God did was came right behind that and reiterated what he had said to Abraham. Look at the fourth verse. Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This, that, that servant that was born in your house, is not going to be your heir. But he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. That, now we use, the term, we use a different term than bowels. He's saying the, the one that's going to be your heir is going to be from you. He's coming from your loins, Abraham. He's not going to be a seed born in your house. He's coming from you. And more specifically down the road, he's going to talk about, he's, and he's already said it, in Sarah, you and Sarah are going to have a child. And in that child um, is going to be the promise of a blessing to all the nations of the world because that's the lineage ultimately of the Messiah. So here's God's reiteration. You're going to have an heir and it's not going to be one that was born in your house. It's going to be one that came from your own body. And verse 5 says that, and, and listen, I get this picture in my mind. And I know that, all, that, that he's seeing all this in a vision or a dream. But I get this picture in my mind. Abraham questioning God. Look at, look at this as a physical dialogue going on between them, perhaps in a dream state. And God puts his arm around Abraham's shoulder and says, let's walk outside for a minute. 
And in verse 5, the Bible said, God brought him abroad and said, look up to heaven. And tell the stars. If thou be able to number them. And God said unto him, so shall thy seed be. Abraham ain't even got a son. God said, look up to the stars. Your seed is going to be as innumerable as the stars of heaven. Now, he'd already given him one visual of that. In chapter 13, verse 16, he said, your seed is going to be like the dust of the earth. He gives him another visual promise of that over in chapter 22, verse 17. And he said, your seed is going to be like the sands of the sea. And so I want you to get this in your mind that, that essentially what God told Abraham is that everywhere you look, when you look up to the sky and see the stars, when you look down at your feet and see the dust, or when you look across that vast sea, you're going to see a reminder of the promise that I made you that your sea, your seed is going to be as innumerable as the dust, as the stars, and as the sand of the sea. Everywhere he looked, up, down, across, everywhere he looked, Abraham would be reminded of the promise that God made to him. Now, I'm going to tell you, it's hard to live between the promise and the fulfillment. It is. Listen, we sang a bunch of songs about heaven this morning. I love those heaven songs, don't you? Every one of those songs this morning contained promises from God. And that last one, I can't, can you imagine that? There'll be no sorrow there. No more burdens to bear. No more sickness. No pain. No more parting over there. That's promises. That's taken straight, straight out of the scriptures. But see, we're living in between right now, ain't we? We're in the between time. And I'm going to tell you, sometimes it gets hard. God, we know you said it. But are you sure? We, we, we know you promised it, but has it's, it's something changed? These, these are times of, of difficulty. These are times where doubt can easily creep in. And there are a lot of people out there right now that are trying to make us doubt. And when we start doubting, we start getting fearful. We put our faith in crisis. But God will help us. God has helped us. The one that sees all, that knows all, the one that exists outside of time, that's not looking at time like you and I are looking at time. The one that sees the whole scope of things from beginning to end can help us navigate through the time between the promise and the fulfillment of that promise. Verse 6 is a powerful verse. The Bible says, Ab Abram, he believed in the Lord. 
And he, that is God, counted it to him, Abram, for righteousness. Now, God already made these promises to Abraham before. You understand that. Now the questions and the fears and the doubts arise, and so God reiterates the promise, and this time, for the first time ever, the Bible says he believed. And that when he did, God said, you're righteous. He was righteous because he believed. He believed in the Lord. And he believed that, that this God who promised to be his protector and his provider, that he was the I am and that what God said, he could and would bring it to pass. He believed in the Lord. He believed in what the Lord had said and it was counted to him as righteousness. So listen to me. He was righteous because he believed. He was not righteous because he did something. He is not righteous because his faith was perfect. He is righteous because his faith was simple and sincere. I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know when you're going to do it. But I believe you're going to do it. And can I tell you, there's a lot of things going to happen between now and the Lord returns that I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know when he's going to do it. But I believe he's going to do it. There's some, by the way, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and you can just, you can go look these up on your own. It is quoted in Romans chapter 4, verse 3 and verse 5. It's quoted in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, and it's quoted in James 2, 23. So all the writers of the New Testament understood that what God said about Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, is a big deal. That God called, listen, this is the first time in God's word that we got a man who is being called righteous and right standing with God. Now we, we got some, there's some not, not that he was the first man that was ever righteous, but the Bible doesn't tell us. Seth was a good man. Um, Enoch was a good man. He walked with God, the Bible says. But, but this, but, but, and, and Moses, Noah rather, said that he found grace in the eyes of God. But this specifically says, Abraham simply believed and God said, you're righteous. You're not perfect in your belief. You're not perfect in your works. But you're right because you trust me because you're sincere. Now, I, this, is, this is just... A freebie, all right. This is a. I'm gonna chase a rabbit. Just a second. There's some theologians, and I'm still pondering this. I'm still meditating on this myself. There are some theologians that believe that this was Abraham's first response of saving faith, because this is the first time that God has actually declared him to be righteous. And so everything up until this point has been God leading him to this point. And I want you to understand this. Sometimes in people's lives, God pro progressively reveals himself to them. And then they reach that moment where they're in that crisis. And, and in that moment of crisis of faith, 
they re-question, they question God about everything that he said, and God reiterates and validates that, and they finally, the light comes on. I got it. Listen, my whole life growing up, I thought I believed everything that I was supposed to believe. And I did. I mean, I knew all the truths of the gospel. I knew, I knew everything that was written in there. My whole life up until I was 27 years old was a revelation of God of himself to me. But I wasn't walking in faith. I'd try to do a little bit of righteousness on my own from time to time. Y'all know how that goes. You, you think, man, I better, maybe I better balance the scales a little bit because I've done a bunch of bad. Maybe I need to do a bunch of good. But the night that I finally said, God, I, ain't, I can't. I, 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 can't even, I can't even beat myself out of this place where I've put myself. I don't know how to crawl out of this hole that I'm in. I don't know how to beat this addiction. I don't know how my life could ever do anything that would be considered a blessing to anybody. But that night, for the first time ever, I think I exercised saving faith when God said, I forgive you. I said, I believe you. I believe you. From the bottom of my feet to the top of my head, I believe that my sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. Let's go. I'm still pondering on that, that this may have been Abram's salvation experience. Up to now, he'd just been kind of walking where the Lord told him to walk and not doing that perfectly. But now God reiterated the promise and Abraham said, you know what? I trust that promise. Now he's going to get some temptations in the next chapter from his own wife. <laughs> Trying to help God out. That didn't work. Still costing us all today. But Abraham believed God. And God said, you're righteous. Now, let me, let me hurry through it. This whole chapter could have ended right there. We good. Abram could have just stepped back and said, okay, God, whew, thank you, because I was all in a turmoil. My, my heart was full of fear, but you made me look up to those stars, and you made that promise, you reiterated it, you said it again, and I'm good now, God. But God wasn't finished. In verse 7, he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And then Abraham, here's, a, here's another question. God's saying, don't forget the rest of the promise. I didn't just promise to give you children. I promised to give you all this land. And so Abraham said, How can I know that I'm going to inherit it? How do I know that you're going to give me this land? Can you help me understand that? And then God says in verse 9, Take me a heifer 
of three years old and a she-goat of three years old and a ram of three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another. But the birds divided he not. Now this is, this is strange to us. But this was a pretty common way of what they called in, the, in that time cutting a covenant. This would be like me and you going down to the attorney's office and sitting down at a table and the document being laid out before us. And the attorney would say, you, notif- you, no- you sign your name there, you sign your name there, and I'm going to have this notary stamp a seal on it that seals it. That's essentially what's going on here. Now there's some, there's some, there's some things here that I'm not sure I can interpret, but usually when they cut the covenant, both parties would pass between those pieces. It was, it was a symbol of life and death. I mean, they're passing between the bodies of dead animals, swearing that they're going to keep the promises that they're making to each other. And normally both parties would do this. But in this covenant, as we'll see in a minute, God walked through the pieces by himself. The three-year thing, to me, speaks of Christ. In fact, I believe every, every sacrifice in the Old Testament points us to Jesus. But it's strange in that God said, find me something three years old, three years old, three years old, and cut them up, cut them. Jesus spent three years of ministry. He didn't, didn't allow himself to be introduced as the Messiah until he was 30 years old. He, he, he spent three years in ministry. And then he passed that cup across the table and that broken bread across the table and said, this cup is the New Testament. It's the new covenant in my blood that's being shared. It's being shed for you. And so I think there's a, there's, a, there's a picture here of what Christ has done for us in cutting the covenant. Now, verse 15 is interesting. Buzzards came. Fowls came down upon the carcasses. Abram drove them away. You know what Jesus said about when the seed is scattered? You know what the seed is? The seed is God's word. The seed is God's promises. He said, he said sometimes birds are going to come and snatch those seeds away. And he gave us the interpretation of that parable. He said the wicked one comes and snatches away that that I put in your heart. And so God's made Abraham a promise and the enemy says, I'm not going to let this happen because I don't want Abraham to have the reassurance that he needs to walk forward in faith. Abraham drove him away. And can I tell you this? I believe any time... Anytime God is about to confirm his promise and strengthen our faith, the buzzards of doubt are going to try to creep in. Drive them away. Get thee behind me, Satan. God said, but let me me close, let me finish this. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep 
fell upon Abram. And lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. Now, I can't help but that be a reminder to me of the cross. At midday, which you could start, you could say at midday on Good Friday that the sun literally was beginning to go down. And a darkness enveloped the cross. He said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them. They shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Now, I'm not, I, I don't have time to dig into all that. But while Abram was sleeping, God was confirming his promises to him. Literally, what God did in this is laid out 500 years of history. He said, Abram, you're living between the promise and the fulfillment, and you're going to live to a good, ripe old age, but you're not going to see what I've promised you. When they went down into Egypt, there were 70 members of Abraham's family that went into Egypt. They multiplied there into the millions to the point that Pharaoh said, we've got to kill all the male children because they're going to overpopulate and overthrow us. Israel spent 430 years in Egypt. God brought them out. And he brought them out with the spoils of Egypt in their hand. Just like he told Abraham. In the fourth generation, they're going to come out. Not until then. You're not going to see the promise fulfilled. You're going to live a good long life. And the promise is coming after I call you home. God knows all about the Egyptian experience. And His promise remained through it. It didn't go away. Why did it take so long? Well, God told him, the iniquity of the Amorites, those are the people that possess the land. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. When, when it's time for them to be judged, I'll judge them. And in verse 17 through 21, it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. He'd already made a promise. He'd already given his word. Now he's making a covenant. He's signing his name. He's swearing by his own name. Now if you want to take exception to that, I'm going to show you a passage in the New Testament in a minute. But if you don't want to go read that one, I'm going to have time to read the other one. 
Isaiah chapter 45, verses, I believe it starts at about verse 22, and if you'll go down through about verse 25, God gives the promise of the Christ, and he said specifically in Isaiah, I have sworn by myself. I have made the promise, the covenant, the oath in my own name. In the same day, the Lord said, I made a covenant with Abraham. Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. Now, God laid out specific parameters for Israel. By the way, as far as I can tell, Israel never fully possessed all of the land that God promised them in that covenant, but they will during the millennial kingdom. So the promises God made to Abraham, he didn't even see in, he didn't see in his own lifetime. He didn't see it in the Old Testament dispensation. He hadn't seen it all in the New Testament dispensation. But Abraham sitting in heaven today saying the promise of God stands sure. Only God went between those pieces that day. That was God's oath. Abraham believed God. And this was God's guarantee to him that his faith was one day going to be made sight. This is God swearing by his own name certifying to Abraham that what he promised he would perform. But I'm going to read you one last passage in Hebrews, and I'm done. And I'm not even going to try to preach this. I just want to read it to you mainly. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 says this. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee, and so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. This is, this is hard to read in the, in the King James. It's hard to get your mind around it. For, for men verily swear by the greater. And an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Remember what I told you early on? We, we tell somebody we're going to do something, and they have a hard time believing us, and so we swear to it. We lay our hand on the Bible and we say, I swear I'm telling the truth. The writer of Hebrews said, men swear by something greater than themselves. Because when they swear by something greater than themselves, people believe what they said. So when I swear in God's name or I swear by the Bible, I'm swearing by something greater than myself because that's an end of the discussion. That's an end of the strife. That's the end of the doubt and the end of the confusion. God said there wasn't anybody greater to swear by. So he swore by himself. He put his own name at stake. Verse 17. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability, that means unchangingness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation by two immutable things. God made a promise and then he confirmed it by an oath in his own name. God said, I'm going to do this, and then he swore it in his own name. Why? So that we might have a strong consolation, assurance, who have fled for refuge to lay hope 
to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner for us is entered, even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here's what Hebrews chapter, in a nutshell, God can't lie. God won't break his covenant because God's own name is at stake. And the writer tells us that what God did for Abraham, he has done for the church in Christ. That none who trust in Christ will be lost. Did you hear what I said? None who trust in Christ will be lost. Now you can talk about apostasy another day. And the first part of this chapter talks about apostasy. But the believer, the truster, the one who trusts in Christ will not be lost. Why? Because God promised it with his own mouth. And he confirmed it in a covenant, a New Testament covenant, in his own blood and with his own body, that what I am telling you, you can take it to the bank of eternity and cash it in. All of those who have fled for refuge to the Lord Jesus Christ, we have an anchor that has been cast behind the veil for us. The Lord Jesus Christ sits on the throne of heaven, heaven and confirms the promise to us every day and says, you're coming home. It might not look like it now, but you're coming home. You live in between the promise and the fulfillment, but you're coming home. Your faith ain't perfect, but you're coming home. You don't always get it right, but you're coming home. You're going to have a child with another woman, but that ain't the right child. You're coming home. You understand that Abraham couldn't mess up what God had done as long as he trusted God for the promise. And he did. And God said he was righteous. He's the anchor of my soul. Listen, I don't believe I'm going to heaven because I'm going to cross every T and dot every I and never have a doubt and never have a fear and never walk outside the will of God. That ain't why I'm going to heaven. I'm going to heaven because God made me a promise in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that promise. And God has guaranteed that promise and has swore by his own name that it's true. And can I tell you that the promise that he's made to me, he's made to whosoever will. That means anybody in this house this morning that believes that Jesus Christ is God's only begotten Son, that He lived a sinless life, that He died a sacrificial, substitutionary death for your sin on the cross of Calvary, that He was buried in a borrowed tomb and that He arose victorious on the third day, that He's ascended back to heaven to intercede for you, that He's coming back again to take home His church one day. If you believe that about Jesus... And you will confess him as your Lord this morning and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. The Bible says, God said, God guarantees, you will be saved. Now, if I didn't already have that promise nailed down, I'd be nailing it down today. 
Because you don't know what's ahead for you. Abraham didn't know what's ahead for him, but God told him, you're not going to see it. You're not going to see everything that I've told you. But you're going to die in a good old age. And you're going to sit in my presence until I finish this work that I'm doing in the world. When, when old poor Lazarus died, guess where he went? Where Abraham was. Abraham said, sit down here. We still got to wait a little while. Jesus said, one day all those that believe are going to come from the north, south, east, and the west. They're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. Why? Because I promised. And I made an oath. I swore by my own name. Have you claimed that promise this morning? God gives it. All that is required of us is that we believe it. Now, there's, there's something to be said for those that believe it changes their life. It does. But that simple, sincere, authentic, imperfect faith is what God sees and says. That's righteousness. You believe in me. You believe me. That obedience flows out of that. It's God's guarantee. Let's stand. Lord, I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray, God. I don't know that this isn't one of the most important chapters in all of, the, in all of your word because everything, everything up until this point in Scripture, it, it culminates right here. It, it, it is a, a life-changing moment. It is a world-changing moment. It Literally, the scope of history is revolving around this covenant made with Abraham and the seed that he would possess that would bless the whole earth and we know because the Bible tells us that that promise involved the promise of the Messiah and we know that you narrated it right on you, you narrated it right on down for us in the book that it's coming through Abraham then Isaac then Jacob And then through the tribe of Judah. And then through the lineage of David. Started with this big, huge spotlight. To the hope of all the world. And you narrowed it right on down to a manger in Bethlehem and said, Here he is. The seed. In whom all the nations of this world will be blessed. And I, I believe there's some folks in this room this morning that, that want to believe that, that need to believe that, that hadn't yet. I pray that something that's been said, that your Holy Spirit has taken it and penetrated a heart. That they've believed for the first time fully. That what you said, you will most certainly do. You've sworn by your own name, God. You won't jeopardize your character or your nature. You're going to do what you said. 
And I just believe there may be somebody in this room this morning that needs to flee for refuge to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our protector. He is our provider. He is the one that your word says all the promises of God are in Jesus. Yes. And in him, amen. I pray somebody would lay hold this morning on that promise. And God, for those of us that have, I pray, Lord, that we have been reassured, stabilized like Abraham was, and that we'd move forward in that promise in obedience and be a witness to the world. Have your will and your way in this invitation. We'll praise you for anything and everything that's done. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.